Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and we're back with another podcast. Um, today, we're going to kind of do a little bit of a deep dive into a topic that Nick wrote about on Optive website uh, called "Is Christianity Liberal or Conservative?" Or conservative. Um, but before we jump into that, I just wanted to give people a quick update that. We we moved and I, and I sent an email out to people who were subscribed to the Optive website, but we moved the Optive website to Substack um, just because it's cheaper, it's a little bit uh, more functional, and um, and we've gotten a lot more traffic on there since moving, and and a lot of our subscribers subscribers have moved over, and so um, Nick Nick's article on is true Christianity liberal or conservative is on the Optive uh, Network Substack. I will put a link to that in the description. You can go check that out. Um, it's the same deal, you know, five bucks a month, uh, exclusive articles and things like that. But it's just on a, on a slightly different uh, platform. But uh, now we can kind of get into this. I think Nick wrote this this article. Um, I thought that, that it was interesting. I think that in the beginning, you kind of talk about how you come across a lot of Christians who have a have mostly younger Christians who have a difficult time differentiating uh, when they hear the words liberal and conservative. They oftentimes think think politically rather than generally or theologically or biblically. And so, I think maybe we could get started by maybe you explain uh, what liberal and conservative actually mean, and then we can get into how those two terms relate to Christianity and whether one is more Christian or, or the other is more Christian. Yeah. I think it's important to start with the idea that um, Jesus, the Christ knew that the world when functioning in a worldly way relative to sin functions on power, not truth. People aren't primarily concerned disinterestedly, right? Relative to themselves. What's true. They're like, they Mm -hmm. think, what can I, how can I get what I want? Mm-hmm. And when you do that, then you function on the basis of power rather than truth. And when you do that, you start using words however they suit you rather than based on what they mean that we can all agree on so that we're all playing fair when we use words, right? Mm-hmm. And so the words liberal and conservative have pretty straightforward meanings. That is, a conservative is someone seeking to conserve and transmit a given culture, set of ideas or norms, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you, so, and what that normally means for a conservative person is that, um, most of the, most changes are bad and mm-hmm. usually you get more bad unintended consequences in any change than positive goods. That's a fundamental mm-hmm. of human life. Um, there's a lot of liberals mm-hmm. who would agree with that. They, they know that's true, mm-hmm. you know, and it is true. Right. And so, um, when you make any kind of new change or you do any kind of brand new thing, you tear down some system that's been proven over years and years and years. And you're like, we're going to do it totally differently. There's so many unintended things happen that you did not intend. And oftentimes the goods you intended don't materialize. Um, so a, a good example of this for me is the sexual revolution, right? We were all going to be happier. We were all going to be freer. We were all going to have more sex. It was going to be more satisfying sex. It wasn't going to affect the birth rate. There weren't going to be fewer marriages. We we're going to keep all the goods. We were just going to be freer and happier. And that just didn't pan out. We're not, we're not really that much freer. We're not that much happier. Most people aren't having more sex. We're having more STDs. There's, you know, it's like, it, it's pretty chaotic. Now, yeah. um, the conservatives say, well, human beings are also adaptable. And so 
we have adapted to this and made it better than it could have been otherwise. It could have been even worse than this. But anyway, the idea is conservative, a conservative mentality is usually changes end up being bad. So don't make changes you don't need, right? Mm-hmm. Reform rather than revolt, right? Mm-hmm. Usually you want to reform and keep reforming something that you have rather than change it entirely because change can be catastrophic into people you didn't intend, right? And so what you do is you, in, generally speaking, what that means is if you want to change something, you start with as small a scale as possible. And then if it's really working, you begin to scale it and see if it changes at scale. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, that, and, and then and then also, conservatives also tend to believe in um, what F.A. Hayek called the fatal conceit, which is the idea that planners know more than participants, that planners mm-hmm. know more than participants. So mm-hmm. the Soviet, the government of the Soviet Union felt like it could set the price of leather without ever going to a shoe factory, hmm. right? They ended up setting mm-hmm. the price of leather higher than the market would bear for a price of shoes, hmm. right? Which messed up everything in their comp, right? So because this idea hmm. that the central planner knows more because they're the expert, that's, hmm. a, that's a very like progressive or liberal big L idea, right? Mm-hmm. That if we plan everything perfectly, then we'll get the results that we want in the hinterlands. Mm-hmm. Most people say, no, that's not how it works. So like famous mm-hmm. conservatives would be like Edmund Burke, um, Fyodor Dostoevsky in, in, in a certain ways would be a conservative along these lines, but definitely Leo Tolstoy. Um, but like in Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, or I'm sorry, in Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, um, that is basically a conservative novel. Um, mm-hmm. Vronsky mm-hmm. and Anna go off to paint in the country. Right. Mm-hmm. And they said is they get away from agrarian life, the, the cycles of the earth mm-hmm. and the people and the peasants mm-hmm. and Levine and Kitty um, like mm-hmm. feel totally disappointed. They leave the city life and they go to the country um, to run this farm. And mm-hmm. there Levine has all these ideas from the city, the central planning ideas from the university. Mm-hmm. And he realizes they just don't work with real peasants. <clears throat> the peasants have mm-hmm. this like rhythm and this way of living life where they're happy. They mm-hmm. can work things get done. They don't kill themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like, it has this organic sense to it. And Levin realize, mm-hmm. realizes that like he had been looking at the world all wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning he had become a liberal big L in St. Petersburg mm-hmm. and he was learning what life was like in embodied human existence, right? And so some mm-hmm. people will also accuse progressives or liberals of having more abstraction focus. So Thomas Sowell has become famous for this, the African-American economist, where he'll talk about the elites have, they look at the world like an abstraction, and a conservatively minded person looks at the world as an organic unity that you have to understand how it works before you can try to change it. As opposed to saying it should be like this, now I'm going to change it. You say, well, what is it? How does it function in itself? Now, what changes can it bear? And can you actually have? And then which of those changes will we try on a small scale? Okay. So the, li- so the conservative is slow to change, um, wants to conserve the best, doesn't want to change things, sees the liabilities in changing things, and so on. A liberal, mm-hmm. on the other hand, is a person who says, um, why not change, right? New, we're discovering new things all the time, right? So oftentimes liberals will appeal to science because science is the fa- probably the fastest changing thing, especially within the realm of technology. And so they'll say there's these, these new exciting things that change everything or change a lot. And there's also ways in which we've gotten it wrong. Now, of course, they're right about that, right? Most cons- The way conservatives um, function in the world is that they create systems or institutions that, mm-hmm. that create goods for us. Those institutions have hierarchies by definition. You can't get away from that. And so hierarchies 
grow corrupt over time. And so all institutions will have corruption in them. And so the liberal will go, look, see that corruption. We like that. That's a form of oppression. We got to get rid of that, which is correct. Mm. Right. And so generally speaking, liberals will say the system we have isn't all that good or isn't as good as we think it is. It's not helping everybody in the same way. And two, mm -hmm. um, there's so much new that we need to incorporate in order to incorporate it, we need to change. So let's change. Mm -hmm. So liberals tend to be quick to change. Mm -hmm. And then they, they'll usually say, look, if it doesn't work, we'll just change back. Yeah. What's the big deal? But right? they, now, the they don't take it. But right, right. They don't take into consideration but, some of the bad stuff that could, that could come in the time period yeah. in which things have changed. Correct. Yeah. And we can get to that. But I, I think it's important to note that the liberal is also right, that the conservative mm -hmm. can just keep the status quo indefinitely. Mm -hmm. And yeah. when things really can change yeah. or should change, they right. don't want to, and they don't want the trade-off. So uh, one example of a mm -hmm. conservative, maybe you could say is a conservative failure. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think it's probably true is women's suffrage, women getting the right to vote mm -hmm. in places like England and America. Okay. When, when suffrage was being advocated for, right, there were a lot of women, women and men who said, look, we need to give women the right to vote. And there were a lot of men who were like, look, men voting is like fundamental in the dynamics of the sexes in society and in life. And you'll get fewer marriages, fewer children. Like you'll like the, the way the world works will change dramatically in ways that are not, not going to be helpful. Right. And yet women didn't have the right to vote in their own society. Right. And so like on one level, you could say trying to conserve certain things about the male female dynamic in a society, in which men are normed to families they know where they live in institutions. Men are, are quote, tamed or harnessed in the society through that hierarchical mm -hmm. masculine structure. And, and men were like, look, if we lose this, we could lose a lot, right? But also women mm -hmm. didn't have the right to vote in their own society, right? So we decided, look, women need to have the right to vote in their own society. Now, and many of the things that men feared did in fact happen. The harnessing of men mm -hmm. in the structure of society hierarchically in large numbers has declined considerably. Now, is it because of that or is it because of other things too? No, but I don't know. Right. But there, there yeah. you say, if you say, well, were there, were there downsides to women getting the right to vote? Well, maybe. Right. But is there a very significant upside? One that seems to be more just. And a lot of people would say, well, yeah, I mean, when we needed to do it. Right. Obviously, obviously we could have kept slavery and said, look, it's a status quo. You let, you let black people go free and it's going to be chaos. And a lot of Southerners said that, Right. They said, we got to keep slavery because not because slavery is just, but because the chaos that will ensue if we get rid of this institution mm -hmm. is unthinkable. That's why there were ideas mm -hmm. of like sending everybody back to Africa or sending everybody to Arkansas. There was, I think, I think Lincoln said in one of the Lincoln Douglas debates, one, op one option is all black people could go to Arkansas and they could have Arkansas, right? <laughs> because they were like, they were like, yeah, it's going <laughs> to be chaos. But the, but the Republican party um, or the anti-slavery people said, look, on one mm -hmm. level, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter how much chaos there is because the evil here is big enough that mm -hmm. we just have to do it, right? And like, I mean, there has been a lot of chaos since African-Americans were freed, but like mm -hmm. what else could have been done? Nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So th there's a number of changes yeah. that liberals are right about. They say, look, we have to change this, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, there are some situations where liberalism, I think, is the morally obligatory action. You have to make a change. Mm -hmm. Right now, there are conservative ways to make yeah. change, and there are liberal ways to make change. But there, sometimes you have to make mm -hmm. change, and you should make a change. And yeah. sometimes change is stupid and foolish. So there's two questions that come into my mind. Well, there's two two examples in the scripture that come to my mind that I think represent both sides of this. 
One is in Ecclesiastes where he says there's nothing new under the sun. It seems like a, like like kind of a conservative argument for like, hey, look, if there's nothing new under the sun, why make all these changes? Why not just conserve and preserve the things that we already know are good and get rid of the bad things? But then on the other hand, you obviously have Jesus who like changed the whole entire game and and kind of came in and and took all of it kind of took all of what the Jewish people understood as traditional understandings of the law and of their their belief in God and flipped it on its on its head. I mean, saying things like the first will be last and the last will be first and and fulfilling the law and like Jesus in some ways was like a revolutionary liberal figure. Uh, you could see him that way. And I also think he was a very conservative figure as well. But you could take I mean, I think the conservative could look at, you know, some of the some of the things in scripture like yeah there's nothing new under the sun if we try this new thing we know it's not going to work let's just not try it and then and then i think christians could also look at jesus and be like yeah well jesus came in and totally revolutionized the way that people are supposed to think about the world and kind of flipped it on its head so i guess my question would be as these two things relate to to christianity how do you relate both of these two things specifically to christianity and people's interpretation of one of scripture and two of the way that they live out and think about their Christianity. Cause there's things in Christianity clearly that can't be changed. We like obviously know that. Uh, well, I would say there's everything in scripture can't be changed, but how should we, how should we live our life knowing that Jesus came in and did change quote unquote, like change the game in, in, uh, in the way that the, the Jewish people in that time period thought about their faith. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's important to recognize that um, the con- revolutionary, well, the, in, in Marxism, the terms are revolutionary and reactionary. Yeah. Um, but um, re- the word revolutionary can be thrown around quite easily. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in one sense, a revolution is anything in which we do things very radically different than we did them before at the end of whatever it is. Right. And then there are revolution that revolutionary can also mean we're going to just tear everything down and we don't really. Yeah. Would you call Jesus a revolutionary or reformer? Which one? This is why I want to define the word before I label Jesus because Jesus is something in the Bible. And so now we're trying to apply a label. So we got to be really clear about what the Mm -hmm. label means. Right. If you define revolution well enough, then absolutely Jesus is a revolutionary. Like Mm -hmm. if. If Satan says, basically, I have control over this world. Yeah. Right. And Jesus has come to change that. He is fundamentally changing the order of the world, which is a revolution, right? There is a Jesus revolution. If it means he's going to disband private property, then no. Right. Right. So like part of it is like, Mm -hmm. you've got to know what the heck you're saying, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think in one sense, Jesus is a revolutionary in that he is changing the world as we know it. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, we will find ourselves in a life different than the status quo very substantially. Mm -hmm. I think that, for example, if somebody goes from being a a non-Christian to a Christian, what happens in their life is not just a reform. It would be a revolution, right? Mm -hmm. To use metaphors like to die and rise again from the dead. Mm-hmm. To have a stone heart removed and a heart of flesh being put in. You you look at the metaphors of the new birth, right? And these are radical 
metaphors, right? Ephesians 2, you were mm-hmm. dead in your transgressions and sins. God made you alive in Christ, right? These are intended to be pretty, pretty like radical um, uh, metaphors. And so in that sense, I would say, yes, becoming a Christian, being a Christian, following mm-hmm. Jesus the Christ, what Christ is doing in the world, that the kingdom of light is coming into the kingdom of darkness, that the kingdom of God, right? That's, I, that's very revolutionary in the sense that it's fundamentally changing our lives to something very different, right? However, when people say that Jesus was a revolutionary, meaning he was tearing down the status quo and creating something totally different by undermining its internalized system, I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a lot of New Testament scholars have tried to show this by showing how Jewish Jesus was and how in many cases his interpretations of the Old Testament is how the, inter- how the Old Testament should have always been interpreted. So, for example, in the divorce law in the Old Testament, there's this place where it says in Deuteronomy that if a man marries a woman and, quote, finds something indecent about her, he should write her certificate of divorce and send her away. And the purpose of the Old Testament command is that any woman could have a written um, receipt of their marriage status. So that woman would be free to remarry, right? A man can divorce his wife. So the man has that right. But the woman is free to remarry. She has that right. Okay. Now. The word indecent in Hebrew either means they find she's not a virgin, like that the, the marriage happened on the basis of sexual fraud, right? Mm. Or it could mean anything that the husband determines is indecent or that is not that which he wants to live with, right? By the time Jesus comes around, there's two schools. One is the, the school that says, look, if the woman burns dinner and the husband finds it indecent, he can divorce her. The other is, it means sexual immorality, and that's all it means. So when Jesus comes along, he's, and he, what he does, he basically, listen, it means sexual, like Moses said you could get divorced, but I'm telling you, unless you commit adultery, the marriage covenant isn't broken. What's he doing? He's basically saying, you've been misinterpreting De- Deuteronomy all along. It always mm-hmm. meant non-fraud. It always meant that if there was sexual fraud, that a man has a right to divorce his wife. But that's it. Right. Other than that, all the rights go to the woman in terms of like whether or not she can be abandoned. Right. And so in most of these areas, Jesus is in continuity with the quote status quo of God's revelation, but not the status quo of people's behavior. And if you look at it that way, then you can say that Jesus is a great reformer. Right. God has set up a a system, a hierarchy and institution. Men and women have corrupted it. Now he's coming into the institution to keep the institution, but to address the corruption. And see, of so course, that, see, that I think you makes say, him look revolutionary to could, people. It makes him look like he's a revolutionary because they're living so outside of what the natural right. order actually should be. So people will look at Jesus and say, of course, he's revolutionary. He's just changing everything. But what Jesus might say is, I'm just putting everything back into its right proper place and preserving what is true and, and ordered by God. Yeah, imagine if if George Washington or uh, John Adams became incarnate into the political life of America today. Yeah, right? that would be. They'd be what would they do? I mean, I mean, they would say this is nothing like the system I set up. All of mm-hmm. the corruption we most feared is happening, and mm-hmm. we we need to tear this all down. And they would look like some mm-hmm. kind of like weird communist revolutionary. I mean, the, the, the people right, would be, wouldn't, right. wouldn't have any idea what to do with them because, yeah. but in their minds, they would be setting up resetting up the system they intended in the first place, they would be a reformer. You might have another mm-hmm. person come along and change the government just as much, but their intention mm-hmm. is not to reset up what was before, but to start something totally new. The difference mm-hmm. between the reformer and the revolutionary is not how big the change is. 
Mm-hmm. It's what the difference the between them is. Are you addressing right. corruption mm-hmm. so a system can work, or are you trying to fundamentally change the system of humanity to something different? At least in that mm-hmm. culture. Does that make sense? Okay. So, and, and so I would yeah, argue, so, I would argue yeah. with human systems, Christians can be on, on, on both sides of it. It depends on what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes I think so we should another, be revolutionaries. Sometimes right. we should be reformers. I think there, there's obviously another part of this whole liberal conservative uh, conversation that you wrote about as well. That that obviously there's there's these two ideas of liberal and conservative, but they they also relate to our temperaments, each individual person's temperament. And um, so, okay, but so before we get into the like the whole question of whether or not Christianity is liberal or conservative, or how we should think about Christianity, I think it's important that we discuss the temperament because I think. It would depending on an individual's temperament, whether they're liberal or conservative, their view on this question is going to be they're going to have a biased view on this question. So for me, I feel like maybe I tend to be a little bit more conservative. So, of course, my answer to this, this is Christianity, liberal or conservative. It's going to be like, yeah, well, it's 90 percent conservative, 10 percent liberal or whatever. And and then maybe it Mm -hmm. flip flops for somebody else. How can so and I think that that's a dangerous place to be. I don't think we should take our temperament and just insert it into our interpretation of scripture or interpretation of what Christianity is. I think that could be, that could be bad. Uh, one for people who don't know what temperament is, what is temperament? And, and two, just explain briefly, you know, what is a conservative temperament? What is a liberal temperament? Yeah. So temperament is basically, um, a reference to your your emotional life, your masculinity, femininity, a number of things about your personality and how they lay out and interact with each other, creating mm-hmm. a, a mental climate in which you make decisions, right? We're not all making our decisions from exactly the same mental climate, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so if you have, um, so for example, women tend to be higher in negative emotion, what's, what's called technically neuroticism. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're neurotic bad. It just means more attuned to negative emotion. So they, mm-hmm. so if like a baby's crying, they tend to be just more attuned to that naturally, right? Just mm-hmm. distributionally, not every woman or every man, but like if you, if you had a baby crying, like 75% of women would be more concerned about that than 75% of men, right? And so um, there yeah. are some temperaments where a highly operative part of their temperament is empathy. They're concerned mm-hmm. about the other person's well-being and therefore, they believe that they want to help the other person. There's another group mm-hmm. of people that temperamentally are like, look, if most people don't get stronger, we'll have to carry too many people. So you have to have a system that creates strong people, right? So we can carry the weak people. Well, I want to carry the weak people, but we can't have too many weak people, right? The way Dinesh D'Souza said this years ago is, if you imagine people pulling a cart and some people riding in the cart, if eight people are pulling the cart and two people have to ride in the cart because they have broken legs or something like that, or they're sick or old, that works. If you have six people in the cart and four people pulling it, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right? So any functioning society has to have as few people as possible riding in the cart for as little time as possible. Mm-hmm. And so that, that mentality is like, we have, to, we have to start with strength. And then if we establish strength, then we can carry weakness. Right? And so those, those sorts of people will be like, okay, so we got to push people. We have to hold people accountable. We need to make people tough. Mm-hmm. We need to parent for resilience. We need to sew up. Right? Historically yeah. and just naturally, yeah. that that's usually moms and dads, right? Generally mm-hmm. speaking, a mom is going to say, "What does my baby need?" Right? Mm-hmm. Because my baby is weak, right? There the is a question is like, I have though. He, around he can't stay weak forever. 
Yeah. There's a question I have around the the macro level. If you pull this out and you look at a society at large and you say, okay, like, let's just say it's, I don't know, right now in our society, let's say that there's more liberally temperament, more liberally temperamental people than there are conservative. I think that that's generally true, especially in the younger generations. The issue that I have is that I feel like when I look at these, the, at at uh, like your example, Dinesh D'Souza saying, "Hey, if we have six people in the car and four people pushing, um, like this isn't going to work." The question that I would have is, okay, so then in an in an average society, how many people on average throughout time have been in that weaker or th- that need to be in the cart? And then and then what happens when a society is over liberalized and they te- like I mean this is the victim mentality that the the right talks about that they victimize a bunch of different people so then you have way more people thinking that they need to be in the cart than actually should be in the cart and then you have a very small minority of people pushing everybody and then I get taxed way too much on my, on my income because everybody needs help that that's that's yeah. and that's I think the issue that we run into right now in America that that the that there's a lot of people in the cart that don't actually need to be in the cart, but they they believe that they need to be in the cart because they've been they've been overly nurtured in a liberal, more I'd say liberal, more debilitating way. Uh, like, what do you do about that? I mean, what what are what are conservatives supposed to do about that? Because this is I don't like some of the rhetoric mm-hmm. in the conservative. Republican side of things politically where it's like, you know, they, like, don't be a victim. I think some of these words and some of these phrases have become kind of like, like they just overset everything woke and victim, but there's some truth behind all of it. How do you like, how do you move people away from that, that mentality into a, uh, how do you, how do you not throw the baby out with the bathwater? Cause I think for me, conservatively, I want to be like, nobody needs help. But there's a fact that, yeah, maybe there are two or three people out of 10 that do need help. Um, and so temperamentally, what are you supposed to do about this when in a society there's a huge differentiation or I guess a huge uh, difference in in the levels of people who are liberal or conservative temperamentally? Yeah. So, okay. So a couple of things there. One, I do think it's possible in a society to so teach people that they are carrying the mentality of the society. Right. So I do think you can. So I don't think this is a question of temperament. I think temperament is kind of like inborn and human. Um, but I think I think temperaments then can be educated with a moral outlook and that moral outlook then does interfaces with their temperament. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I was doing a talk with with uh, students and adults recently on uh, gender issues. And I said, listen, one of the things one of the insidious things about saying that essentially we can have a morality through empathy is people forget that your mind is supplying a moral philosophy when you're empathizing with somebody. And people don't realize that's happening. They think it's purely heartfelt and natural. Mm. And that it's not ideological, but it is because mm-hmm. when you connect with the other person's suffering and empathy and you feel some, some connection with it, and what happens is you then feel some responsibility to it. And that mm-hmm. sense of responsibility, because and you know this because you'll, you'll feel in danger of feeling ashamed or guilty. Mm-hmm. Like I need to do something it seems for this like person. In, Otherwise in I'll be, I will be wrong. 
Yeah. It mm. seems like in James where, where I mean, and any emotion can be taken that way. Like the, the I think James said their anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The, like anger in and of itself as an emotion isn't inherently wrong or sinful, but the human version of anger and empathy in these things don't necessarily produce the righteousness of God. That's why building a moral ethic around these emotions can become yeah. catastrophic, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I was wondering where you are going with this, but yes, correct. Emotions that have moral capacity, um, yeah. you, the, the, the emotion will supply you with the moral instruction. And some of that moral instruction is going to come straight from the flesh, Christianly yeah, speaking, yes. right? Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's yeah, just yeah. going to be bad, right? But in addition yeah, to yeah. that, what I'm saying is that when you have empathy, let's say for another person, your mind then accesses on an emotional level, but you're still accessing your moral philosophy, which is not necessarily the philosophy you generally think that you believe in, but what is honored and dishonored in your culture that you've naturally grown up to think is plausible, right? And so um, when you're working through these kinds of things, if your culture has taught you to be, quote, liberal, you're going to have liberal instincts about what to do when you have the empathetic response to somebody. If you're in a conservative culture in which that's what's honored and shamed in your culture, your in, your sort of instinctual emotional response is going to be in that direction as to terms of in what way is your empathetic response responsible, right? That has to have content fed in from the outside and that's your, your moral ideology. So in a society that has a, a um, therapeutic, you might call a therapeutic moral ideology that mm -hmm. I'm hurting, you're hurting, we all need help right? Then that's going to be the default thought when I have an empathetic feeling, right? Mm -hmm. So for most of the history of yeah. the world, for example, nobody thought that because people are hurting, the response is you should be in favor of a welfare state. Nobody <laughs> thought that. Everybody thought you needed to help people. I mean, almost everybody did. Lots of people did. There's all kinds of charity throughout all the world for all kinds of people in all kinds of ways, but nobody thought you should have a welfare state, right? That became something that people came to find plausible later when a, as a culture, we thought certain things about like economics and people's lives and so on. Mm -hmm. It went along with a new ideology. So yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Conservatism and, and liberalism as they play out and what shapes they take in different cultures are tied to people's temperaments. But when their temperament accesses the more liberal or more conservative ideology, that's relative to the culture that they're in. There's a shape of that in their culture that they have absorbed and learned. And they're okay. only conscious of the part they've learned. They're not usually mm -hmm. conscious of the part they've absorbed. Okay. So, so if this is, uh, okay. So you're not, you're obviously not going to ever come into a culture that is perfectly balanced. These two things and been able to work right. properly. I mean, every culture is swinging the pendulum back and forth through time and they figure out they get too liberal. So then they go more conservative and then they get way too conservative. They get more liberal. And that's just how most societies have been. Okay, right. so but on a personal level, if you're born into a let's say overly liberal like like in America today, you're born into an overly liberal society that is dead set on focus on this empathetic, maybe more empathetic moral structures that they've built up that ha that can ultimately become debilitating for a lot of people because it makes them into a sort of victim. What what is the job of the the Christian individual? To is do they have a job of like trying to uh, balance their temperament out or kind of pushing themselves into a more uncomfortable side of the spectrum? Like like for me, is do I have a, a moral responsibility being an overly conservative person to try to 
push my push myself to be a little bit more empathetic and and liberal in my temperament or is your temperament just the way that you are it's tied in with your personality and who you are as a human being and that can't be changed and we just exist within within the communities that we exist in and hope that God brings in kind of a <laughs> the equal equal amount of liberals and conservatives together to make sure that the church doesn't become too corrupt in either sense which is the right response for the for the Christian person yeah. to say this is just how I am or I need to change yeah so th- I think this is where the Christian starts with saying neither of these are inherently true right if you're a conservative then the question is well what is the quality of the thing you are conserving mm-hmm. right and so there's 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 no reason to just be conservative right similarly um, if you're being liberal if you're acting thinking in a liberal way the, the question is well what are you changing into what mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. the question of which is appropriate is relative in that sense right and so the, you have to supply something so if somebody says I just am a conservative okay well in America that means not just that you're conserving and transmitting something it assumes a bunch of ideas right mm-hmm. and those mm-hmm. que- the question is are those ideas good are they timely are they in proportion and that's something that we that a Christian would pursue through Christian discipleship, God's word, our understanding of what's prudent, our understanding of natural law, etc. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's always going to be relative and subject to some of our perceptions because what the what the right marginal tax rate is, who should be allowed to get so, like some kind of subsidy from the government for their life, all those sorts of things. Should we have what? How should we um, increase the access to, um, to medical care? All those sorts of things are are really questions of prudence. Now, there's two things that happen when you recognize that. The first is you don't have to hate the other side. You actually realize you need them, right? I actually, though I, like sometimes, I, like I probably vote more Republican significantly more than Democrat. And um, I, I, I think that at this moment in time in America, that um, we need more of the, the conservative stuff than the, the liberal stuff. I think we've been doing a undisciplined liberal experiment in a number of things for a, while, a long time and it's unsustainable. So I think we have to move back in that other direction, but that's a relative consideration. I can imagine a world in which conservatives won a lot of fights and then those things got tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. Hmm. And then like there were people who were like millionaires and billionaires and so on. And there wasn't a free access to markets. People didn't have control over their lives. And I would be like, okay, this is this actually is not good, and these people haven't just won what they deserved, right? So, right. I, so one, you know, you need the other side, and two, you're thinking of it in terms of how much of each, not whether you get your team to win. Like there's there's a word in Dutch. I was listening to a Dutch reformer say this recently. There's a word in Dutch for politics, and it's it comes from irrigation. A little more, a little less. Too soggy and the crops do poorly, too dry and the crops do poorly. That understanding how a world should be, a country should be governed has, has more or less, more or less, more or less. Generally mm-hmm. speaking, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Well, I, right? I wonder the, the, the question that I have is, okay, you're talking a little bit more economically, which I know is indicative of a, 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 economics. What we believe economically is indicative of what we believe about human nature and moral moral ethics and things like that, but there, I would, I would guess that you would say that there are certain moral and philosophical, political, politically philosophical truths that should never ever be uh, changed or, or or played around with. Like we could say, okay, maybe we could say economically, 
you know, people get too rich and then nobody can really, we got to start putting regulations on stuff or people, you know, we're taxing everybody and nobody can get, make any sort of, uh, headway in, in building their own business or something like that. And now we have to take taxes, you know, cut taxes back. But th- that's all about like the economic, the, the kind of the, the play economically and what people are able to do individually and as families to be able to provide for themselves. Uh, I think one, yeah. politically right now, the big issues, the hot topics <clears throat> are obviously the economy, but the the morals the the like trans ideology the what what to teach kids in school the uh, like sexual revolution the, the what's come of the sexual revolution and things like that like th- these are the questions that people are talking about politically that are moral questions and as as far as those go i w- you wouldn't say that over time it's like oh, a little, a little irrigation, like a little more, a little less on like trans ideology or something like that. Like you, it would be like no, n- never that, and then always, always a conservative view of sexual ethics or something, right? Yeah, in a way, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I would say like the the if you look at the liberal impulse, like the maternal impulse, that um, what what my baby needs is care. Right mm-hmm. now, obviously, women don't function a hundred percent in a care metaphor, and men don't function a hundred percent in a strengthening metaphor. Right? That's yeah. not true. But generally yeah. speaking, distributionally, men women tend to be a little mm-hmm. bit more like, "Look, I, we got to keep this child alive and non-traumatized mm-hmm. and fed, and so, like, and so the child needs care, right? And the dad is kind of like, "This child is going to go out into the world." And needs to not dishonor us, not be a burden, and be strong enough to operate well in the world. So we need to strengthen this child. This child needs to get tougher, right? Mm-hmm. So your four-year-old falls in the driveway and skins his knee, mm-hmm. right? Do you clap when he gets up and go, yeah? And mm-hmm. and like, especially if he hasn't started crying yet, to be like, hey, enduring and, and toughening, tough, being tough your way through this instant that just happened to you, that's good, right? Or do you, oh, baby, you know, because he just hurt himself. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and husbands and wives, they argue back and forth. In fact, they, there's, they often have bitterness in their sixties and seventies about yeah. the woman yeah. boxing the man out in like all too much nurture. And then the kid was living in their basement or the dad who is so strict that the kid never comes home, never wants to talk to his family, never wants to be around his family because he hates his dad's guts. Cause all he ever did was try to like, like make him tougher, but there didn't yeah. seem to be any compassion or delight. Right. And so like, um, there was one Dutch. So uh, Michael Schellenberger ran for governor in California, and he cares a lot yeah, about homelessness, yeah. for example. And one of the things he said is he was talking with a Dutch, I think it was a Dutch politician, but it was a European politician. And he said, listen, in order to deal with the homeless homelessness problem, you have to have both carrots and sticks, not mm-hmm. not one or not one or the other. You You don't just use sticks to kind of beat people off the lawn. And you can't just use carrots to say, hey, look, if you do this nice thing, this good thing for yourself, then we'll give you all this stuff. He's like, there has to be consequences and there has to be opportunities. And especially people in a weak state or in a problematic state or in a hurt state or an addicted state, for them to move forward, if you put all expectations on them, they'll crumble. But Mm -hmm. if you give all opportunities but no expectations, they won't move. Mm -hmm. And so in order for this to work, there have to be expectations and there have to be opportunities. And there has to be support and then people will flourish. Now that's kind of true everywhere. That's true for kids. Mm -hmm. That's true for workers. That's true for minorities. That's true for majorities. That's true for white men. That's true for black women. That's true for like everybody. Like Mm -hmm. some people are going to make it in almost any environment. That's a small minority, Mm -hmm. right? Then some people 
are going to make it in some environments and some people, a small portion aren't going to make it probably in any environment unless they get a lot of help. Mm-hmm. But some of those people can offer something to us as well, right? They just are going to need help while they do it. And so the mm-hmm. question is, is like, how does Jesus want us to live with each other and love one another, right? And and I think that the answer is that love requires us mm-hmm. to act in the true good of another. So if our act of charity or compassion to somebody is not allowing them to become who they were meant to be, we're enabling them, then it's bad charity. It's toxic charity. It's it's bad help, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But if what we if, if our requirements and our like if our freedoms are producing an idea, a dynamic where a lot of people who are trying in good faith cannot succeed, then that there's a falsehood there too, mm-hmm. right? I tend mm-hmm. to think of um, two things in the Old Testament that are weird to the conservative. One is manna in the desert. So God mm-hmm. gave manna, and it said that the, the dynamic of manna was that when you went out and get it, there you could get more or less. It was up to you how long you were out there picking up the manna, right? But because everybody had access to it and everybody had to get their own, some got little, but they didn't have too little. And some got much, but they didn't have too much. And you couldn't accumulate it. So in God's economy, because he was continually providing for people in good faith, you could nobody could get ahead of anybody else economically. But there was a difference between people and how much they got based on how much they worked. Similarly, in land, right? The land was reset every 50 years. Right. And freedom was reset every seven years. So if you were really bad at working and you ended up being sold into slavery, some period of that seven years, you would be in service. But then at the end of the seven years, you got a restart. And at the end of 50 years, there was a land restart. Everybody got access to land again. Right. And part of that was like nobody was boxed out forever. There was a resetting of chances for anybody who wanted to work and and have a life. There was there was a way if which if you just sucked. So like there's this one passage where if you are a slave and you realize that you you don't run your life very well and you realize that the person who owns you is great and treats you well, you can have an all pierce your ear and you could be marked as being part of that household permanently. Right. And that was a provision for people who just weren't any good at running their own lives, who thought that slavery was better than freedom for them. Mm-hmm. Right. And there are people who, for whom, and I know this might be an unpopular thing to say, but functionally in their life, mm-hmm. slavery under somebody who is a good director of their life is better for them than freedom because they, life is just too complicated for them. They can't operate in it. And to be told what to do and have certain things done for them is what they need. Right. Some mm-hmm. people argue that a lot of modern structure. governments are yeah. that kind of slavery. Right. Everything's done yeah. for you. Everything's given to you. That's slavery. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're told what you can do and what you can't do. And and mm-hmm. anything you don't explicitly know you can do, you can't do. Right. Totalitarianism mm-hmm. is slavery. It's just for the whole country. Right. So um, so within the Bible, there is a sense in the Old Testament economically that you can't have private property. Um, the successful should get ahead. Right. Because they create more productivity. Right. And they earned it. Mm-hmm. But. You don't want those who have much to have too much. Like you want some natural limits on accumulation among those who are successful. And you want resets over time so that people who, who have not been successful can get back in the game. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have, so the dynamic of how God worked things out economically was there's a lot of like freedom, but then there's also these dynamics put in there so that people have chances. I don't mm-hmm. know exactly what that should be in our modern culture, but sure, I know that it yeah. should be something. Right. And so there's yeah. a sense in which those like 
those dynamics have, quote, liberal and conservative impulses to them. And I want to try to figure out what what's the philosophy behind this? What, what are the principles God is showing? And then how can we, print in a principled way, put those into a functioning society? And I think there's probably hundreds of ways to do it. Wow. I don't think there's probably just one way to do it. I think there's probably lots of ways to do it. And a range in which you're doing okay. You get out of that range and you start doing poorly, but in that range, you're doing mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. And so I think for a lot of years, yeah. the United States, yeah. in, in, for the most part, was in that in that range. And I think that we're getting out of that range in one direction. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's, I, we got to move into, I mean, we, this is the Optotheology podcast. The, the uh, interesting, I, to me, the the part that I agree with mostly, I mean, I agree with the whole article, but but the the part that I agree with mostly is is uh, the headline of it in the article is called theological liberalism, and why it is bad. And uh, there's a there's a little quote from this that I'm going to read, <laughs> um, and it it, it says uh, what came to be known as modernist or liberal theology was a theology that changed the historical views of Christianity by seeing them as a kind of mythology pointing to a deep psychological and to deep psychological and social truths that were not historically accurate or necessarily philosophically valid. So a prime example of this right now would be Jordan Peterson's interpretation of, of a lot of old Testament scripture that he's reading through um, is kind of this psychologized or mythologized version of Christianity that, that is that everybody uh, for some reason agrees this didn't happen historically, but what it's teaching us philosophically is, is very important. Um, and, and and then obviously like there's a lot of liberal theology. Um, there's this guy that's super popular right now. I, can't, I cannot remember his name, but he doesn't believe in the. He's a he's a pastor or something like that. He's gay. He doesn't believe in that Jesus rose from the dead. He believe he doesn't believe that Jesus was perfect. So there's there's this, but that like you know Jesus was like did good things, and we should learn from that. And so, uh, so so okay, so we should discuss. Why do you say, you know, you don't say that conservative theology is bad. You say that theological liberalism is bad. And why is that bad? Why is it bad to start to look at scripture in a way, in a more liberal, I guess, more open, more uh, less historical, more maybe philosophical or, or psychological way? Why is that actually bad? And... um that seems like the direction that the church is going to in, in in America today. Like we're we're trying our best to keep up with culture, and a lot of people in culture would say that some of the ideas that Christians believe in fundamentally are archaic, old. They've been disproven. Uh, you know, the Earth is. They'd say the Earth is not seven thousand years old, or that there's no way that there could be a flood, or Jesus. There's absolutely no way scientifically that he could raise from the dead that these must be yeah. be very insightful teachings. Um, is so I guess yeah. yeah. Why is that bad? And like, is that is that a form of heresy? Is is another question that I have. Yeah, generally speaking, I would say that modernist theology or liberal, what we call liberal theology, which isn't necessarily liberal in some ways, other than in the in that we have to change things sense mm-hmm. um is bad and i would say that conservative theology goes bad liberal theology is bad conservative theology goes bad so there's lots of ways in which the conservative theology can go bad um but i think liberal theology when it is modernist theology that is 
that the vital truths of what makes Christianity Christianity. We just say, well, we're just going to change these. What I would argue, and I think Jay Gresham Mason would have said something like this too, is like, it's a different religion. You just should change the name and not pretend you're, you're doing the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. There's a point, for example, where if America changes the constitution enough without changing it, just in terms of our legal decisions and, and administrative state and so on, there's a point which we should just say, okay, this isn't America anymore. We're just doing something right. else. It's not, it doesn't make us bad. It doesn't make us good. It just, this isn't America. Like it is not in the constitutional sense of the history of our Republic, right? We, we've yeah. become and a, let's different, not confuse a different it. country. Right. Let's right. Not and let's not pretend we're doing the, the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. I think that then you're just lying. You know, and so mm-hmm. I, I would be more open to, to um, that happening. Right. And so in Christianity, like if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is false. We need a new religion or no religion at all or something. Right. Now, mm-hmm. when it comes to some of these other questions, there is a question of does the Bible claim for itself inerrancy? That is, that it's right in every proposition, proposition that it claims. And if it does claim that for himself and that is a Christian belief, are there any things that the Bible claims that are false and so on? So I think, I think within the realm of, of historic Christian orthodoxy, for example, like you said, the earth is at 7,000 years old. So like Augustine in the fourth century who knew nothing of a theory of evolution other than from the pre-Socratics, um, he wasn't sure what the, what the age of the earth was or exactly how God created it. He thought that the, the narrative in Genesis was for the work week that God was going to impart to humans in their co-creative relationship with him. And it was told that way for that reason. Right. But Augustus is like, God probably created the universe in a millisecond, not in seven days. He thought it was shorter than seven days, not longer. Right. But he didn't know how long ago it was. What Augustine, the reason Augustine thought that was not because he was blowing off the scriptures and therefore Christianity and changing Christians views. What he was doing is he was saying, well, what's the right way to interpret Genesis one. Okay, but For you would agree that there's a that there's a difference though between doing that and doing what is happening today with with Dar- Darwinism. Like he wasn't being like, okay, I got this pre existing philosophy in my head that I got to make fit into scripture. Like I've been at so many in the past twenty years, so many right. Christian things where it's like the the what what do they call it like faith and faith and science and how we can bring these two things together but what they're doing is saying i have a pre-existing philosophy that i can't give up i need to force this into my christianity and so that's a bit i think that's different than what uh was that augustine or that right yeah augustine augustine Augustine, yeah augustine Mm -hmm. yeah whatever whoever yeah i think that those two things are a bit different and i think that's the difference between a liberal theologian that that seems to me like a difference between a liberal theologian and a and just a guy trying to interpret things the best that he can, who comes to maybe some to some interesting conclusions, not based off of pre-existing philosophies. Yeah, one of the reasons I have never been I've never been really happy with the idea of calling a theology liberal and therefore bad is because um, I don't think what's wrong with liberal theology is the liberal principle per se, like. Um, for example, if we if if people believed that the Earth was created like six, like seven thousand years ago, because they believed that Genesis one was literally seven days, right? And then um, Adam is the first man, and that if you go through the amount of years people lived, and you just there's no gaps in the generations, and you just literally add those up, and the Earth is literally five thousand four hundred and seventy five years old, or whatever it is, right? And that's literally exactly true, right? Um, if you say Look, I don't think that's true from what the Bible says itself, or if we rightly interpret the Bible. I don't think that has to be a quote liberal 
approach. I think a liberal approach is when you say evolution is true. The Bible is wrong. Mm -hmm. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk like the Bible Mm -hmm. is true. Mm -hmm. And we're going to say, but what we're going to teach is evolution, Mm -hmm. but we're going to use Bible language to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That would be a quote, liberal or modernist right. approach. Uh, a, a integrationist approach would be, and, and look, integrationism can go wrong. But mm-hmm. in, what an integration says is, okay, I'm going to look at science, try to figure out what's true. I'm taking the Bible as true. God isn't wrong. Uh, is my science wrong? Is my interpretation wrong? Right. Mm-hmm. Is there space in my interpretation? Is there space in my science? How, how does this function? Right. So like one yeah, example, so, yeah, so, so some yeah. people will be like, well, evolution says that the fewest number of humans there could be to evolve into a new subspecies is 10,000. There can't be an original couple. Therefore, Adam and Eve are definitely mythological and not literal people. Okay. Um, Bill Craig recently has accepted a lot of the evolutionary site, evolutionary, um, claims about the evolution of human beings, but he believes that the 10,000 minimum only goes back 500,000 years. That if you go back 750,000 years, you can get a single couple genetically. And um, Dennis Venema, who made the other claim most prominently within Christian circles, admitted that that was genetically true based on the information that we have. And so that led Craig to say he thinks that Adam and Eve did exist and they existed 750,000 years ago, not seven. And that you could integrate faith and science, the biblical narrative, and the scientific narrative that way. Now, whether or not Craig is right, whether or not Venom is right, whether or not Ken Ham is right, everybody's trying to do some integrating here, what, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and so I don't want to just say, well, that's liberal. What I do think is, quote, liberal is that when you, when you overwrite mm-hmm. the status quo, where you were getting your information, when how you were understanding something, with something that's pretty new, and you say this is right, and this is what we're going to follow, right? Mm-hmm. And you and the process of integration is something everybody ha- does naturally. You have to do it because mm-hmm. you're always getting new knowledge, and you're always keeping some old knowledge, and mm-hmm. so you're always going through this process of keep keeping some of the new knowledge, getting rid of some of the old, and and then making it all fit again, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. doing that. When you put yeah, a lot I, of emphasis on yeah. the new, and that new just overwrites the old. That's liberal. When the mm-hmm. when what you already have dismisses the new, that's like a hard conservative, right? And, and what I, I'm I saying is part of the issue here is, is that you you've got to do both. Mm-hmm. I think there's the problem room is, there, is that almost like, nobody wants to do both because there's so much freaking new information every day. It's yeah. it literally is cognitively impossible. Yeah, I do think that there's within liberal, and I think this is what you're saying that using the word liberalism to cover the entire to say liberal theology is bad that implies that like like there's certain theologians who have weird liberal like that have weird ideas theologically like uh like at Jonathan Edwards I think he thought yeah that all that was happening was all within the mind of god that it was all in god's mind or something like that's like a that's not like that's not in the bible it's kind of weird when you could consider that to be like a liberal, maybe like a, a liberal take on a liberal theological take. I don't think he would say this is absolutely true, but there's a certain amount of theologizing that has to be done that is speculative. And and if it's speculative and kind of outside the realm of 
what the Bible explicitly says. Are you saying that that type of thought is still a liberal theology, like a a liberal way of theologizing, and that's not actually bad? What is bad though is if you bring, if you look at scripture and you and then you look at whatever science or philosophy and say okay, scripture is wrong. I need to fit that into my science and philosophy. Like, like, like liberal theology is a, is a huge umbrella that, that encapsulates a bunch of different things. Some that could be maybe just fun thought experiments, like what Edwards was doing. And then some that's like, okay, you're, you're, you are questioning the inerrancy of scripture and questioning the authority of God. You've gone, you, you, you're out of control. Yeah. I think what I I think what I mean I would say is this is that I think calling liberal theology liberal is probably um, is probably wrong, but that's what we've done. I mean, and, and this gets back to the fact that I think we use the words liberal and conservative when we should mean something else that's more specific, right? Yeah, liberal yeah. and conservative are these huge tents of of thought to us, but they're also fairly vague. Right. Because conservatism has numerous principles and liberalism has numerous principles. Right. So when you say, well, that's liberal, it's like, well, okay, great. But like, in what way? Right. And is it a bad way or is it a good way? Like, why are we doing this? Like, and so when we, when we call quote liberal theology, quote liberal theology, the question is like, okay, well, but what's, but what does that mean? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think um, one of the worst things about liberal and conservative as, as words that we use is we say them when we mean something else. Like, remember when you used to call everything you didn't like stupid? Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, Andy, maybe it is stupid, but like, can we get more specific about what's going on here? Right. I think liberal and conservative is, is often like that. Is what, I started what we, to say, what we say, I started is, say you're stupid <laughs> yeah. instead of this is that. Yeah. I, <laughs> Which is better. Yeah. So, but like, <laughs> yeah. um, so like within Republicanism in America or conservative churches, someone will say that's orthodox in conservative churches or in, in politics say that's conservative. And what they just mean is mm-hmm. that's good. You should mm-hmm. approve of that. You should mm-hmm. honor that and dishonor its opposite. Right. Mm-hmm. When that's not always, that, that's just, it's just a shortcut. You're not actually being specific. So it, within liberal theology, what the, the early fundamentalists called that was modernism, which was basically mm-hmm. what they said was the yeah. problem with, with this theology, intellectually speaking, is that it is chauvinistic towards modernity. It thinks that because things are new, they're good. They think that Darwin, Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche and and their company are wiser than Solomon, Paul, Jesus, John, and the apostles. And that and there's a bias there, right? And so we're going to reinterpret John through Freud, let's say, right? And they're like no. Like Freud is not better than John, for example. And so like, so like they were, they were getting at like a mental shortcut that this, that this movement was taking. And they were saying that mental shortcut is wrong. It's modernism. It's too much of a chauvinism towards modernity. And I would say that is a normal fault of liberalism that they are, they, they believe they are too quick to say the modern thing, the new thing, the different thing is the better thing. Mm-hmm. Right, it should be the controlling right. interpretive right. thing, right? And without it being conservatism, yeah, without being sufficiently tested or sufficiently integrated, right. or without even knowing what is what already exists. So, like for example, the new people who go to college and don't read any classics, right? And they read yeah. like 
Yeah. Like some, something that was selected because the author is like a certain co- has a certain color skin. It has a certain yeah. LGBTQ identification, whatever. And they're like, Oh, that was great. Yeah. It's like, well, it might be great because it's great. It might be great because you've never read Dante <laughs> or Augustine or anybody else. Right. Like when people say Freud had this, this, this like philosophical breakthrough, isn't it amazing? Like your average Catholic scholar will be like, yeah, that's in Augustine's treatise on the Trinity. Mm. Like it's not, it wasn't new at all. Like in mm. Christian thought preceded it and not only preceded it, but said something similar, but actually said it more correctly and better. And the problem is, is that you don't know your tradition. So part of the issue is, is that what liberalism or modernism does is it points a person's face towards the new and it basically tells them implicitly that studying the old isn't worth anything. So listening to a new play about this or that rather than, than going to Shakespeare's Othello is better. The conservative would say, no, the, the process of time tests things and things that are worth lasting last. And Shakespeare has lasted for a reason. And every kid should learn Shakespeare, even though they have to basically learn a different form of English to understand it. Right. Yeah. Now on one level, you're like, okay, yes, there should be a corpus and we should know our history. On another level, people can only read so many books. Do they only read old books? And then we can't be, we can't, we don't have space to read any new books. So when liberals say, well, can we add some authors of color? Can we, I mean, I would say, well, in principle, I think, yeah, we need to. But we also I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I don't think historically like that though, but that the question I think is so just incompetent. It, like the, the, can we add some books by people of color or by trans people to me is not like, that's not the questions people were asking 500, 400 years ago when they're starting like Yale, they weren't like, okay, what what how much diversity can we put they i think they're trying to find what are the great works of of the past 2000 years that are going to change people's minds and I, I have a hard time believing that the great works of today, what what academia considers to be the great works of today these maybe uh things written by people who identify as all different sorts of things the, that these are going to be the great that people will look back on this time and be like in you know 400 years they're going to be reading these books i think that the question should be are they are they great i think great things can be written mm-hmm. today but i think it has absolutely nothing to do with with the color of people's skin or anything like that i think that that's just a shallow racist way of viewing viewing the the i guess viewing the world or viewing people's ability to create new things the only people who can create good new things are the people who have, who are black or who are uh, LGBTQ. I just think that that's a, that just doesn't seem to me like liberal or conservative. It seems stupid. <laughs> so I, it just doesn't seem like it go, it, it does anything for people. And I don't think in a 500 years, they're going to look back and be like, wow, I'm glad they made the decision to teach, you know, 5 million kids, uh, Ibram X Kendi or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that and I, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to write the essay is because what you and I could do so easily is see how the conservative mentality demonstrates the weakness in the liberal mentality. Like I could sure. sit here all day and talk about weaknesses in progressives that are so obvious to me because I have in, on one level mastered the conservative outlook. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> um. 
I have also interacted with and read and tried to master in myself the liberal outlook and try to be able to critique it the other way. I mean, you've heard me say this a number of times. The reason why we're at each other's throats is not because we're right and everybody else is wrong. But the problem is, is that on some level, everybody's right. Mm-hmm. Like there, like, like there are a number of things and it's not always what we think we're right about, but the reason we won't change our minds is because we know that there is something right about what we're saying or what we think that the other person is not taking into account sufficiently. And mm-hmm. that's why we won't change our mind. And mm-hmm. what liberals can see in conservative thinking and action and so on is that they're like, yeah, some of that stuff you're saying is true. We, you know, we can't have unlimited debt. At some point, we'll have too much inflation. Like that's probably all right. But, mm-hmm. um, like, wh- what about what about these other things that you're not talking mm-hmm. about? And yeah. what's going to happen there? And so on. And it doesn't seem like you care too much about those things. And so, what I want to do as a as a Christian is instead, is I don't want to get captured by any any mental shortcuts because i want to be able to turn myself to god and hear the full message of the scriptures and see all mm-hmm. of what he wants me to do mm-hmm. and god's not a republican god's not a democrat and those two groups of people and those mentalities are going to evolve over time and devils have a lot of influence in what's going on and there's stuff outside of those that i need to see beyond those political parties mm-hmm. that have nothing to do with that politics and if i get fixated on the politics not only will i get fixated on one side or the other I'll also get fixated on what whichever side that is or both sides tell me is important rather than what Jesus says is important. Mm-hmm. And so I mm-hmm. need to be able to, to both not get captured and transcend mm-hmm. the conversation of the people pulling me in one direction or another because mm-hmm. they are using conservative and liberal as summary statements of what we should approve of. Mm-hmm. What I need to understand is the dynamic of what is what does it mean to conserve and transmit? What does it mean to, in a liberal way, see the new and integrate it well for our benefit? And how do I work through those two processes in such a way as to honor God, honor the unchangeable, timeless truths revealed in the revelation of God, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the Christ, the teachings of his apostles, the mannishness of humanity, and so on. And how do we, through technology and growth and learning, integrate new knowledge that we are learning as we take dominion of the earth as God commanded us to? And how can I integrate those faithfully rather than unfaithfully? Right. And so then when I see somebody who's taking a more liberal approach to Christianity than I am, I don't immediately say you're a heretic. But at some point I might say, your, lib- your, your integrating of the new things has gone wrong. It's become a modernist chauvinism and you're just slapping the new stuff onto Christian faith. It's not as integrative as you think. But then I'll turn to the fundamentalist or the, the Christian who's too conservative and I'll say, look, you're not keeping up. Mm-hmm. You aren't integrating enough. And because of that, you're, you're losing, you're losing your calling in the present moment and you're only seeing part of your calling. I mean, one of the things that mm-hmm. conservative churches can struggle with is like really caring about and having ministries that are actually working with the poor and the hurting and the broken ministries mm-hmm. of nurture can often just not do super well at conservative churches, but mm-hmm. also, um, Uh, Ministries of strengthening and reaching often don't do well at liberal churches. Mm -hmm. Liberal churches are notoriously bad on evangelism and notoriously pretty bad at doing discipleship in Christian faith as opposed to liberal political ideology. Mm -hmm. Like when I've spent time at liberal churches in Madison, it seems like all they're discipling their people in is liberal ideology. Mm Mm-hmm. And and politically liberal ideology, not not theologically. I mean, well, they kind of cross yeah, over. Yeah, so stuff in that's in ways. Christianity 
that fits with the nurturing impulse they bring out and they teach other people about Christianity. And that fits with the ide- ideology they have yeah. politically. And those work together pretty well. Right. But, and then they just don't talk about where the Bible shows that Jesus is the, is conservative in those other kinds of ways mm-hmm. that, that he's okay, like this strengthening is my... us and he's pushing us and he's all that kind of stuff. And that's all in the Bible. Yeah, too. This leads, right. This leads into our, my next, the next segment of your article that uh, theological liberalism versus political liberalism, where I, I think I, I understand where I think this part, it feels to me like this kind of undoes some of the stuff that you previously have talked about. And in this podcast, we've talked about that. Okay. True. You say here, my point is to uh, show that theological liberalism and political liberalism are different. And I understand that technically theological liberalism and political liberalism are different. If we're looking at these two things in their, you with their proper definitions, liberalism, capital L, um, very like more temperamentally, more nurturing. But what I have a problem is, is I think that, that people will read that and say, cause, cause this, this gets it obviously spoiler people, we're going to get into the question of like, okay, then how should Christians think politically? And, you know, we've had this question, we've talked about this on this podcast before, but I think it's an interesting question because Political liberalism and theological liberalism, while they one of them is theological, one of them is political, politics and theology are both about your worldview, your ethics, your morals, what you think is right and wrong, how you view the world, how you interact with other people, how you interact with your neighbors. That's that's what Christianity is about. That's what politics are about in a lot of ways. And so I feel like over my lifetime, I've seen the left, the more liberal, uh, politically liberal Christians do their like try as hard as they possibly can to create this chasm between political liberalism and theological liberalism, where to me, it's a Venn diagram. There's, there's clear absolute crossovers between the two that no matter how hard you try to differentiate these two things so that you can keep your political liberalism and, and still call yourself a Christian. The, the way that I look at it, I'm like, look, you're making moral when you when you make liberal, politically liberal statements, you're making moral statements. And when you make Christian statements, you're making moral statements. And the question has to be, which of these are is right, which of these is wrong. And I think that to say that theological liberalism and political liberalism are different, I just think I think it's important to be more specific on exactly what that means because i wouldn't say because mm-hmm. i think people will say oh theological liberalism and um or like theological like like that that kind of okays some of the left-leaning political philosophy and ideology of today that that kind of says well we can differentiate that from our faith and we don't really need to like that's not about christianity like like lgbtq plus like you can have you can vote for people who are pro homosexuality pro-gay marriage but like you know that then the what you believe about christianity is different it just seems to me like it kind of doesn't even work at all and so my my question is what exactly do you mean by theology i know that you've talked about theological liberalism but is there really a huge difference between political and theological liberalism it just seems like the same thing they're just one one different word in front of them that that both kind of are summed up in in moral, I think theological and political. I mean, if you take them to the root, they're talking about yeah. the 
the moral and ways in which we interact with each other and with ourselves and with God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely, I, I think I could definitely say my experience is that when people are theologically liberal, they tend to be politically liberal in, in the United States mm-hmm. in my lifetime, you know, in my adult lifetime. So in the last 30 years or so, I would say, yeah. Or the other way around. There's a very, very strong core correlation. And I, it's very hard for me to not see cause in that correlation. I think it is causal because it's a, it's a similar way of thinking um, and so on. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I also think though, it's very temperamental. I think so. I think sometimes people with a certain kind of temperament are going to be more prone to theological liberalism and to political liberalism. And so the two will correlate because of the kind of person the person is. So sometimes I think their education, their background will precede both of them. Um, And so they'll go together, not because if you're theologically liberal, you're politically liberal or vice versa, Mm -hmm. but because they go together nicely. Philosophically Mm -hmm. speaking, I think theological liberalism and political liberalism go together nicely. Right. Um, However, I think for a number of there's – there's also a number of people who will take a party or a political position in America and just bracket out certain things that they don't agree with and say, look, there's only two platforms for me to approve of in America. They're both very complicated platforms. And so I'm just going to bracket out some of the pieces and just accept this one because I have to pick one, right? So a lot of African-American Christians – um, will say, look, there's a bunch of things I don't agree with, right? Like black people would proposition whatever in California for, about gay marriage was voted on. A very significant number of black people voted against gay marriage in the private voting booth. But they also voted for the Democratic candidates because in their minds, a lot of Democrat programs are what should be done. And because they benefit African-Americans who do need the nurture of the state because of various reasons, whether it's because of oppression or because of poverty or whatever reason they, they think that's better. So it, like it, for, for me, like there's, there's a, there's a pretty easily sketched version of the democratic party that I could support. You'd have be, you'd have to bracket out abortion for me. And you'd have to bracket out a number of things in the LGBTQ advocacy agenda, but, but not, not that much stuff. I mean, I would be on the right of the Democrats, but like I could, I could function in there. I'd just be like, look, we're, we're wrong on some things and we need to fix that. Um, so I could be a Democrat. Um, I, I thought if I ran for office in Madison, maybe I would run as a Democrat and just be like, yeah, our party is just wrong on these four things, but it's right on these other things. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm going to talk about, you know? So, um, so yes, now there are within evangelicalism, especially in younger cohorts, it's surprising how many people are liberal politically and yet hold to a historical biblical view of Christian faith. I do think that that does create some difficulties. Um, I mean, I think that they do. I think that a lot of people, this is where I run into like, I think a lot of people think that that is, that, that is a, they believe that what they're doing is logical and reasonable and makes sense that you can be politically liberal and theologically conservative or orthodox. And I have seen in younger people how when and a lot of them say that they can do this that they're that they're the i think that they think that i mean they're the exception to the rule that they can have a a philosophical uh a kind of a, a break in philosophical logic in that you can believe and vote for things that are totally different than what you say that you believe in orthodox christianity 
that this is just a this is just a faulty logic and their life oftentimes is indicative of the chaotic of of their chaotic philosophical or political and theological belief system in that there's contradictions all over the place that they say they can do one thing, but they don't. And they can believe this, but they don't live it out this way because it contradicts the way that they think about this politically. And I, I've never seen somebody be able to do this well. I don't know a single uh, left-leaning, uh, politically left-leaning Christian, self-proclaimed Christian that that is actually doing the Christian thing the way that the Bible has taught us to do it. I don't know a single one of them. Uh, there's a lot of people who think that they can, but they're not. they're not doing it. And I just don't know. I think it's a I think it's literally a lapse in, in logic and reason. I don't blame them for that. I don't think my generation was taught any sort of uh, we don't have ability to, yeah. to to reason through things and have logic. And so we have a, we have a lot of contradictions, but I don't think I've ever seen it be done correctly. And I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this gets back to what you think God values. Right, like. um no, like nobody performs. Like generally speaking, when I think of these going together, I don't think about the, the like the younger white evangelical person who's like, yeah, I, I vote Democrat, but I am an evangelical Christian or whatever. I believe in the Bible and the gospel. Mm-hmm. I generally think of African-American friends who are Christians who I know vote Democrat and who are like even Democratic politicians and that they they're like, look, there are these political these political and economic issues within the democratic party are incredibly fundamental to the survival of people that i know and that yes i think that abortion is bad but i i know that the funding of this program in snap is going to affect the direct nutrition of 3000 kids in this one zip code of milwaukee and i think that it's fundamental to christian charity and caring for the poor and loving our neighbor to make sure that that money gets there. And I, and, and my Republican colleagues were, are not, we're not going to put that forward and they were not going to sign that bill. And to me, I need, I, I need to do that. And like, when I sit down with some of these folks, like I understand where they're coming from. Now, some of my, some of my African-American theological friends, I think ha- part of this comes to like, what news are you listening to? Like, like when it comes down to like Republican Democrat, I don't actually think it's that it's, it's so much. We care for the poor. We think that abortion mm-hmm. and gay rights, like, like gay affirmation, gay pride is, yeah. is not something we should promote. I think it has much more to do with who you think the evil people are, right? Who are the people that if they have power are doing bad stuff that is determined by who's telling you what's happening. And who you listen to, who's telling you what's happening, which tends to be what we call media. And so generally speaking, when I talk to an African-American friend or a white uh, evangelical and they're like, yeah, I just can't vote for Republicans. And I listen to why. It's because they believe stuff from the media that's on the left. And they're like, well, you know, President Trump did all these crimes and he should be going to prison. And he's like the worst evil thing that's ever happened in his his stuff is full of corruption, blah, blah. And, and then you ask them questions like, have you, have you ever looked at like, do you, do you know like what was on like Hillary Clinton's hard drive? Like, do you know that there's good evidence that her hard drive literally did get hacked by foreign people that like there was a material breach of confidentiality? Do you know that there are people in jail 
for right now for doing less than she did right like did you know like and they they don't know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. they have no idea right yeah and so yeah. And, and and I don't go like well that's because you're stupid and you listen to liberal news like there's so much inf- freaking information out there we're trying to get enough just to make our life run well like I don't even know enough about my finances to know if I even have my own money invested properly in my own life because I'm just trying to get through my day being a good pastor and a good dad to really understand who the good guys and the bad guys are we have to outsource that in our lives we don't have access to the information otherwise and we can't listen to everybody so we have to make selections and we're making those selections based on trust. Right. And so you trust this person who says you should trust this person who says you should trust this person. And that's how you get your information. Right. So and do, we're do, divided me, by this. Let me push back because I do think I know that this is and I've you've talked about this before that that we have to trust somebody to, to help us make these decisions. I think I run into a problem when it's I actually don't think that voting for political candidates should be on the I don't I think that there's a systemic problem in that thought process in that we're voting. It's like a good guys, bad guys. I think that that's how people think about it. I got to vote for the good guy, not the bad guy. But I, I think that that's not how people mm-hmm. should think about it, because I think that us as people who are, you know, so detached from the actual, you know, I don't know Donald Trump. I don't know Hillary Clinton on a personal level. I know what I know about them through media and the people in the media rarely ever really know these people on a personal level. Um, so there's 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 tons and tons and tons of assumptions made by the average American about a person, mostly based off of their temperament, not really off of who they are and what they believe. And I mean, we saw this with Trump and this is what the conservatives will call Trump derangement syndrome, which I think is a cringy way of saying it, but that no matter what Trump said, it was bad. Even if what he said was like inherently good, it was still bad because mm-hmm. of how he said it or where he said it or what words he used yeah. to say. It. And so the, yeah, the, I mean, the President issue Trump that I could have, make puppies bad if he just said he liked them. If he, if he liked puppies. Yeah. People would be like, you know, you'd never see a puppy meme again. So, but the, the issue that I have is that, uh, that I think that that the, because we've been so nurtured in a liberal way, the, these, these newer generations have been so, brought up in this liberal way of thinking an empathetic, highly emotional way of thinking that the only way that they think that the only way that they believe that they can think about politics is they, by creating a, a moral divide between candidates that this person is good. And this person is bad. This one is evil. This one is good. Whereas I think that we should actually toss out the morality of the human being and look at the policy that they're presenting and the things that they say that they believe in what they're actually going to do in office. Because I think that we're us and the media are terrible judges of whether or not a person is quote unquote, a good person or a bad person. I think that there are unique figures in history like Hitler and Stalin that everybody could agree, Hey, this is a bad person. But I think people as complex as Trump, Hillary, uh, you know, Robert Kennedy or DeSantis. It's like, I don't know. They could all be terrible scumbags. They could all be like pretty decent, nice people. I don't know. I literally don't know. Have I want to look at what they've done objectively, what they believe in and what policy they passed and what things they say that they're going to do. That's what I want to do. I can't vote for people on the basis of if I, if me, Andy Schmidt in Podunk, Wisconsin, thinks that freaking Ron DeSantis in Florida is a good person. I just, I've seen you know, as I've been reading the New York Times and the Atlantic over the past six months, that's all that they do on the left it, with the people on the right. And on the on the right, it's a similar thing. They've they've turned the 
they make these like weird moral arguments against people that they have they've never met in their entire life and they say that these are like inherently evil people and i'm like if that's how you're voting you have horrible judgment like that is a terrible way to do anything so i, I don't i yeah. i know that that's how people do it but i don't think that that's the way that they should do it yeah i think okay so i think one of the issues with that is that um there are some people who think that politicians don't always do what they say they're going to do. So like yeah. at one level, I do like, I do like evaluating people on the basis of what they say they're going to do, but I also yeah. don't want to be naive about that. So, so for example, um, I, I was, I, I was generally happy with the policies that president Trump pursued whilst president. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I would be more inclined to be open to him in a second term because of the policy, if 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 President Trump could just be his policies, mm. right, and his court appointments, let's say, I could be more open to that. But like when he was first running in his first campaign, there were a lot of people who were saying, like, look, he's saying all this crap. We have no idea what he's going to do. And there's some people who turned on him because he didn't build the really build the wall. Because he because mm. he kind of couldn't, right? And so like I think like if I look at say Robert Kennedy in the present one or um or Vivek Ramaswamy. Yeah, these are I, hey, I like flipped. Rest- I flipped totally. I'm all on. All, I'm all in on Vivek. I I was DeSantis. I think I'm all in on Vivek. I love Vivek. Yeah. If I had to pick somebody right now in the top three, yeah, I would probably pick Vivek. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's great. I think he can actually articulate those yeah. views. I don't think he's he just like saying crap, blowing smoke. Yeah, he's very smart. It, yeah, very mm-hmm. smart. Yeah. So, I mean, his policies are, I mean, very aggressive. Yeah. They're CEO policies more than politician policies. And I wonder about that. But anyway, the point is, is that like, I don't know what he's going to do. Right. And I, I'm old enough that I've, I've seen a lot of people come to office who I voted for and who I didn't vote for, who did a couple of things they said they were going to do and didn't do a lot of stuff they said they were going to do and couldn't do a number of things that they said they wanted to do. And so Mm -hmm. um, it like, looking at like the policy thing, I think does have significant disadvantages as well. Besides the fact is that a lot of the people in office, especially in high executive office, like presidents, it's not just the policies. It's like all the, they're making hundreds of decisions a week. Mm -hmm. And those are coming out of a certain kind of person and a certain mentality. And so you are in some sense voting for a person and a mentality because that's what the executive is doing constantly. And also Mm -hmm. the government of course is not run by the president. The government is run by the people the president chooses. Mm -hmm. So when you vote for a president more than anything, you're voting for the people that come with him. Mm -hmm. Right. So when people were voting for Biden, they weren't voting for Biden. They were voting for the people who would come with Biden. And when people voted for Trump, they weren't voting for Trump. They were voting for the people who would come with Trump. And so Trump was the picker. Like it was like it's in grade school. Like you pick the two people who are going to pick the teams. The thing that's significant about that person is not that they're the team captain, that they'll be the best player. It's that they're the person who's going to pick the team. And so basically mm-hmm. you're in, in the executive branch, you're picking team pickers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I think and, that and a lot the, of conservatives and, and say the legislature that you're picking coalition builders. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, that that's fair. I think that, that people would say on the right that Trump picked a decent team. I think that they, that's why people really like him. I I think he did, but yeah. I also think that he couldn't keep them 
on his staff. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he struggled. Yeah. And so I think that <laughs> I think that, that I think one of the sad things about Trump is is I think that there's a good president in him. Mm-hmm. And then there's a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. And 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 I I agree with a number of conservative people that say that Trump was more sinned against than sinned. A number of mm-hmm. Trump's quote classic sins he didn't even commit. Like I agree with all that. Um mm-hmm. but I also think that one of the things most human beings learn in their life is that if you if you behave very unlikably, people just turn on you. Mm-hmm. And like you like you don't want to do that more than you have to. And there are, I think there are ways in which President Trump showed that you can punch back. Mm-hmm. But um, there are ways in which the noble warrior becomes the bully and then people turn on him. And mm-hmm. to be that fighter, you have to be um, better to be Don Quixote than, than Genghis Khan. Right, but, but better to fight against the thing and even even be even lose, but mm-hmm. to do it with too much nobility, in a way, than to be the person who is just so good at like killing the enemies that you just run through everybody. Everybody hates G- Genghis Khan, most successful person in the history of the world, maybe other than Jesus. You know, like for what they wanted to accomplish, everybody hates him. Like he's just a horrible person. Mm-hmm. It destroyed countless people's lives. Right, so mm-hmm. I think that. I think that's a huge, and, and President Obama, of course, understood that. Like he understood that, like he was he wanted to throw certain punches, but that that who, what he looked like, how people perceived him as a person, whether or not people liked him, was us was a was a currency, you know, for him. No, I yeah, I think that that's a huge currency. I think in I think it's just frustrating that it that it is so much of a uh, like it's it, right now. I think it holds way too much weight. In how people make decisions about politics, I think, yeah, whether you like the person that you don't actually know or not, I have a hard time with that. And I know that that's very important to people. Some people like that is everything yeah. for them. You know, they have to like the person. Um, yeah, let's let's you just know, run the, through. Yeah, let me say just one thing quickly about the politics. Of this one of the things that I find incredibly <laughs> ironic about American politics is that philosophically, in terms of policy. Liberals are liberal. Progressives are liberal. But in terms of p- doing the politics, they're more conservative. Hmm. And that Republicans, in terms of their policies, they're more conservative. But in terms of how they do politics, they're more liberal. Yeah. And what I mean is yeah. this, is that like, if you look at how progressives actually try to get votes, they look at how people are and how people function, how they actually vote and what really happens and what are the sociological functions. And then they tailor everything that they do in their political machine based on how people are and what you can really do with people as they are. And Republicans are like, I'm, I'm right. So people should vote for me. Yeah, and you're like, yeah. OK, you're being a progressive basically about your Republicanism. You're basically saying, mm-hmm. abstractly speaking, ideologically, I know what I'm saying is right. Therefore, mm-hmm. everybody should go along with it. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the most unconservative way you could possibly look at something. You're not looking at what human beings really are. How do they change their mind? How do they think about things? How do they choose who they're going to trust? And it's, it's just such a strange irony that conservatives run progressive campaigns in how they understand human beings and voters. And, and then liberals run these conservative campaigns and how they understand voters. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it just goes to show that you're like, this whole thing is such a mental mess. Yeah, no, I agree. Right? And that's I why agree. that's I why agree. you have to start with Jesus. You have to say, mm-hmm. my goal is not to be liberal because sometimes being liberal is appropriate and sometimes it's not. 
My goal is not to be conservative because sometimes it's conservative, sometimes it's appropriate, sometimes it's not, right? My question is to look at Jesus the Christ as my norming norm. He's not going to tell me the status quo. He's going to tell us the divine norm. And then I work that out into my culture based on what I can learn liberally speaking and what has been proven conservatively speaking. Mm-hmm. And I need to realize that within what's been established in my culture, there's corruption. And in what is coming in new, there's a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, by, and, and, and sorting through these things, sticking to mm-hmm. Jesus is going to help me, is often going to let me know when there's mistakes in the new and there's corruption in the old. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, I, Jesus said, that, that he, she said, somebody who is fully trained can go into a storehouse and bring out treasures, both old and new. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, that's a throwaway line that almost nobody quotes from Jesus, but he's like, when you've reached real maturity, one of the marks of that is, is that you have this storehouse and there's new stuff in the storehouse and there's old stuff in the storehouse. And you can bring out that old vintage wine. You know, what of the, what of the things to conserve are worth conserving. And you know, what of the new is worth adopting. And, and Jesus is like, that's maturity. Right. Mm-hmm. And we get that from getting our baselines from God, his revealed word, the teachings of his apostles, but also being creatively open-minded and also realistically recognizing the need to conserve and transmit in human society and studying not just the person of God, but the human person and understanding how those people can flourish. Mm-hmm. But that's why politics yeah. is one of the queens of the philosophies, because politics is everything you can know about everything worked together mm-hmm. for prudent action. And mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why everybody voting is such a strange idea. Like democracy mm-hmm. is such a strange idea because to be politically capable is to function at the highest level of education mm-hmm. and knowledge. Yeah. And then yeah, we just right. assume everybody can do it competently. And mm-hmm. that's definitely wrong, but mm-hmm. it's, it might be better than the alternatives. Sure. You know? Uh, okay. Let's, let's end with this. Uh, the last, the last section uh, very last sentences in your uh, article is this. The first thing I tell most Christians about their political views is that they need to be sure that their theology perceives their politics and that their politics doesn't come to capture or control their theology. That is the worst possible outcome. Being politically naive isn't good, but it's a whole lot better than being theologically captured by a political ideology that has nothing to do with Christ. So you kind of just said this before, but how how can Christians, younger Christians especially, make sure that their theology is not captured by their politics in a world where everything is politicized, where where there's a lot of a lot of social credit that you get with being a certain way politically, and there's a lot of pressure around how you think politically and how that kind of bleeds into your theology. Uh, how can people? check their own selves on this and say, okay, is my policy, do, is what I believe about the Bible being controlled by what I believe politically? And if so, yeah, like how, how can they check themselves on that? Yeah. I think in some ways it starts with whether or not you really are willing to submit to God's word and what he says. Um, but additionally to that, as you study scripture in, and, um, try to figure out what's going on. You really have to actively work to put your view aside and to try to figure out what God's is. Mm-hmm. Right. If you do that, I think what happens when you read the Bible is you're like, you'll find stuff. You're like, Oh, that sounds really conservative. 
or that I mean, like that sounds like an, an everlasting principle that needs to be conserved. Mm. That sounds like a structure that is for conserving and transmitting something, right? Like, oh, there's all these like all these conservative fundamentals, and Jesus is approving of them, right? And then you're like, oh, all of the hierarchies that Jesus interacted with basically he thought were corrupt. And so the idea that you just like trust the people in charge because the institutions must be, must be good is clearly naive. Right. And so, and then you start working your way through that stuff. For me, I think it's like you stay, you stay close to Jesus and his, in what he says and what he does in his word and what his apostles teach. And, and then what happens is, is that when bad, because like, you're never going to have it right. Right. What you're trying to do is to get in a place where you are delivered from the most catastrophic stupidities. And when those come up, either conservative or liberal, if you're walking with Jesus and his word, you're really looking to believe him and what he is saying. A lot of those worst things that come in, you will see that they are preposterous. The Bible says, says sometimes explicitly no to them. And then sometimes it's, it says, it shows you why you shouldn't buy a hook, line and sinker that like maybe, maybe some of that, but not. Well, all of what's being said here. So I would say like abortion and um, engaging in gay pride would both be things that the Bible's like, nope. Mm-hmm. Inclusion and the the recognition of the importance of diversity would be examples of like, clearly the Bible says those are important, but clearly there are versions of those that that push out other things the Bible says are important. And so you can you can say I'm for including everybody in the community of God and in our society together, or I'm for diversity in the sense that I want to be in in being inclusive. You're just going to get diversity. And so I need to be positive about that. But then if I take away other people's rights, if I seek to push out their identity, if I will, if I do these other sins in the name of this virtue, Jesus is telling me I'm wrong. And I think that one of the best ways to know you're captured is when you're reading the Bible and because you believe one thing about your political ideology, you're moving in a particular direction. And then something you're doing in supporting that, the Bible just says that's wrong. Hmm. Right. So if you're like, if you're like buying into a bunch of very liberal stuff and you're like, so listen, probably the sexual ethic stuff, and like, you know, like, and then the Bible's like, no, here's the sexual ethic right there. You have to be able to be like, okay. And that sobers you up and like helps you uncapped, get yourself uncaptured even as you're participating with a certain set of ideologies. I think a lot of stuff that the Bible says about breaking down dividing walls of hostility, the communitarian parts of the Bible that says like your life isn't as individual as you might want it to be. You're connected to all these other people. You're in this community. It might not be a a political community. It might not be the government creating the community, but you're in this community. That kind of communitarianness and that ethic in our lives pushes me away from getting captured in too identitarian, too libertarian a mentality and conservatism where I go, I get to control my life. I get to have my job. I get to keep all my money. I get to control my house. I get to do my things. Like the, when the Bible's yeah, like, no, yeah. you, you have a responsibility to the poor. It's direct. Right. I go, oh and, wait, and, there's a limit to my libertarianism then. Right. And so as what a are lot those of people, limits? Right. A lot of people who listen to this podcast, low church evangelicals, one of the main critiques of low church evangelicalism is my conviction is correct it's true my my interpretation my conviction is absolutely true and and if i don't agree with you 
It was funny while I was reading the Heritage of Anglican Theology by J.I. Packer. One of the first things he's he's kind of he's an Anglican, so he's kind of advocating for a high church uh, type of of church structure. And one of the first things he critiques of low church evangelicalism is is a lot of these people are leaving the church or going planting new churches for convictions that they have that are in no way biblical at all. And that's a very like. That's a very libertarian or like, you know, that's kind of a newer idea that you would just get up and go because of you don't agree with how the worship music sounds or something like that. And yeah. so it's yeah. it's that's a new thing. I don't think that was I, it doesn't seem like that was happening yeah. for 1500 years. Yeah. And I, I think that like in that form of individualism and consumerism, you can find in both liberal and conservative. So that would be one of those examples where I'd say, we think it's like a lot of people who are politically interested think it's like this conservative liberal thing. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, it's not like consumerism is eating us all up. It's a, it's a trans political thing. And some of the worst things in present American society are trans political. You're going to find them in both parties, like like over consumerism to the rejection of community. You're going to find in both parties um, the the need just like to buy stuff and have stuff the, like certain kinds of freedoms. You'll find those in both parties, like if, um, expressive individualism. You're going to find in both parties. Right. So like picking a party is not going to say you. Right. And I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think one of the things that, that low church evangelicals forget is there's been a huge debate in Catholic and Protestant theology as to whether or not Protestants are liberals. Hmm. Right. And, and this was one of the conversations and arguments that Burke was having, Edmund Burke was having in England regarding the French and American revolutions. Burke yeah. believed that the French revolution was a true radical revolution. They were destroying an old order. They were destroying what had been conserved and transmitted and creating something brand new. And because of that, he thought it would definitely go bad. He said the American Revolution is the Americans are fighting to sustain or maintain their way of life. We are mm-hmm. changing the, the relationship of common law to the British citizen, and they're saying they will not accept its change. They're, they want to keep the thousand-year history of Magna Carta mm-hmm. and their rights. They're, mm-hmm. they're fighting a revolution, but it's a revolution to stop a revolution. Mm. Right. To stop the radicalism of the British government. And so Burke believed because of that, that the that the American Revolution would actually produce good fruit, mm-hmm. which in some ways he was right about. And so I, I think it's important to recognize the difference. And so like it, Catholicism has said, Protestantism is a, is a liberal action. Right. It broke with tradition. It broke with the transmission of the church and so on. But see, Protestants always believed that they were conservatives. The Protestant said, no, what happened was, is that the hierarchy of the Catholic Church became so corrupt that when we worked to reform it, it, it created an immune response and ejected us. Mm-hmm. And so what, all, all, we have, all we're doing is trying to reform the church. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on your view there is going gonna, is gonna to change things. But I would say, I would say pragmatic evangelicalism. Since like the mega church movement, that stuff since some the 1970s, I think in, in, in some ways that is driven much more by the liberal impulse than by the conservative one. And it doesn't surprise me that um, a lot of those churches are moving in a more, quote, liberal theological direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- there was but an that's article. A lot, that- that's a lot more complicated than that, though. I think I think that those churches have been following culture for a long time mm-hmm. and they have they have 
struggled with where to be like culture and where not to be. And I think that their integration is faltering. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're trying to be liberal. I think they're trying to be integrative, but I think their integration is faltering. Mm -hmm. And that's a much more understandable problem, Mm -hmm. though the results are just as bad. Right, right. Yeah, there, there's an article that I was just reading on the American, and I have to find it. I'll, if I can find it, I'll put it into the notes. But just, I think a lot of young people have no idea what the difference between the American and the French Revolution actually was, because um, even nowadays, the French Revolution is is I f- feel like kind of looked at positively in comparison to the American Revolution, mm-hmm. even though it was it didn't work and it wasn't a very positive experience. It was, it was a different type of revolution that didn't have any sort of, of aim. Anyways, I'll find this article because it broke down. Historically it's been whitewashed too. Yeah. Yeah. You you don't hear about the women eating people's hearts in the streets anymore. Like they, like the, the bloodlust and the horrific hatred and the, and the murder. And like, Mm -hmm. that's all been like really downplayed and, to I know this is a colloquialism, but it's like people are like, well, it was a mostly peaceful demonstration, and it was like, no, yeah. it was not. You it know? does. They're beheading people, and like, I mean, they beheaded the king, but obviously, the anyways. I'll oh, find yeah. this article because it broke down. It was like, here's what an actual revolution is, and then here's what just like chaos is, and it kind of like broke down. Here's here's what are like the four or five points of of a true. And it kind of it it made distinct differentiations between the American Revolution and, and the French Revolution, and why the American Revolution was different, and why it worked, and and why it's important if you're going to have a uprising or revolution that you have very specific goals and very specific reasons for doing this in mind, not just doing it because you want to be liberated and free um, from yeah. you know you have to be going towards something. And so it was an interesting. You have to know how you're going to deliver that. Yeah, and they did. Right, and they had yeah. no idea. Yeah. Okay, I want to be clear because I said something about the evangelical church drifting left and that that's bad. There are also evangelical churches I think are drifting right in a way that's bad, right? Marx, yeah. Marx used to talk about the revolutionaries and the reactionaries. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that those two concepts are helpful because that's what most people will do. Some people will say, we're going to tear everything down and change everything. And then other people are like, you're not changing anything, you know? And right. I think that's unhealthy, really unhealthy on both sides. And so I don't want to say it's just like, well, you know, evangelicalism going, quote, liberal is bad. It is bad. But also a reactionary response. I mean, think about going to a baseball game, right? You go to a baseball game and let's say the Reds are playing the Cubs, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to make a choice of who to cheer for. And that's a lot easier than being the umpire who literally has to watch every single pitch and determine in front of the site of 40,000 people, let's say, whether it's a ball or a strike every time. It is so much more difficult, so much more tedious, so much more time consuming to actually call balls and strikes in your life. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to just come up with a philosophical shortcut and then just use it to affirm yourself in what you intuitively want to believe. And, but when you do that, you aren't going to be able to integrate. You aren't going to be able to have unity with people who disagree with you. And then you won't be able to receive correction from people who see the other side of things, which mm-hmm. is actually more efficient because they will help you see it quickly by giving you personal testimony and ex- explanation. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, even if you say, look, Nick, I can't be somebody who calls balls and strikes in my culture. Okay, fine. That's fine. You, you're probably right. But you need to be as careful as you can possibly be about who, what umpire you're listening to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that person is dictating a lot for you. And I would suggest having two or three of them and 
that don't always agree. Mm. You know, yeah. And I, I mean, yeah. I have probably thirty that I, that I'm like tracking kind of what's happening, mm-hmm. um, and that's just the best I can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Um, okay, but I, th- okay. what I, I want people to see is is that Jesus is both liberal and conservative, depending on on what's going on. Mm-hmm. We should be both liberal and conservative mm-hmm. in certain ways. And we should be able to interact with people who are both liberal and conservative in all kinds of ways. And we have to be able to accept that in ourselves as, as engendered people. Cause if we get married, if I marry a woman, she's going to be more, more empathetic, more focused on care. A, a number of these like liberalish yeah. intuitions than me and men and women are supposed to be enjoy the complementarity of our nature. Now, mm-hmm. if that's the case, what happens in marriage and accepting one another is a microcosm of what can happen in a culture of people who have conservative and liberal values. And we should be able to complementary work together like a marriage as opposed to tear each other apart like mm-hmm. a big group of people who hate each other. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I think we got to wrap this up. We're about an hour and 50, hour 45 minutes into this. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if you want to read the rest of that article, it's obviously it's on the Optive Substack. I'll put a link in the description to go to go read that. It is a member exclusive article, but it's worth the it's worth the money. It's worth the five dollars. Um, and uh, I think one of the I think maybe one of the next podcasts that I want to do. I just finished the book. Uh, I think it's called A Quest for Godliness by J.I. Packer. It's about the Puritans. It's a long. 550 page book longest book i think i've ever read in my life i i thought it was great and i'm going to try to write like a, a review or not that's not a review kind of like a why christians should should read this type of book or why we should respect the puritans um and maybe we'll do a a podcast on the puritans and kind of do a little bit more in depth uh look at at who they were and what we can learn from them and what we can take away from them uh in the future but uh, with all that being said, I think that's it. Yeah. If you like this podcast, uh, make sure to give us a five-star rating, leave a review, um, share this with your friends, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye.